raunchiest, wildest, craziest, rowdiest party at Wild Goose. This is Happy Hour. Yeah. We're, we're going to have a very exciting experience. And that is, we are going to be treated to Bible study done by the Bible bitches. It don't get no better than that. And I will tell you, because I have learned a lot from these women over by listening to this podcast. So... Please give a rowdy, out of control, crazy wild goose welcome to the Bible Bitches. <laughs> all right. It's good to see you all here. We're so excited to be at the Goose. Um, and welcome to the Bible Bitches podcast, where we talk about biblical and religious topics from a feminist, comedic perspective. And I'm here with the one Sarah Hoff, an awesome agnostic from L.A., California. I am. I am from L.A. Um, And again, like, you guys, thank you so much for coming out. I'm so excited to be here. I'm here with Laura Barclay. Uh, She's a Baptist minister, Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, so we, like, uh, we're here hanging out. We have Aaron Goddard with us. Mm -hmm. Aaron, tell us a little bit about yourself. Please. Uh, I uh, live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I know these two from Divinity School, and they let me crash their party during Wild Goose, so I'm crashing the party. Every time. We'll do that every time. Always. Um, And we are really excited to follow up the Touch podcast. Uh, They really teed us up well talking about purity culture, because that is what we are going to be talking about today. Um, Yeah. All right. Who's ready? Um, so we want to start out with kind of framing this a little bit. Um, and Jessica Valenti, who wrote The Purity Myth, How America's Obsession with Virginity is Hurting Young Women, has a really good description for our topic today. She defines purity myth as um, that girls are only, uh, their only real worth is their virginity and their ability to remain pure, which results in a lot of shock, religious sexual shaming yeah so i'm gonna go ahead and assume that most of us grew up in some sort of purity culture i still have my purity ring from from like middle school Ooh, describe (laughs) it it's it's a gold and it has a heart and in the middle like in this part of the heart the middle of the heart it has a little diamond is it supposed to represent how pure your vagina is yeah it's never been broken (laughs) that's the deal like that's 100 percent the deal Um, that was subtle (laughs) um purity culture isn't real big on like a nuance they're just very (laughs) black and white as it turns out they're, they're the father-daughter dances. Yeah. Never participated in those. But, I mean, like, but it's an interesting, really fucked up, terrible whole narrative, right? Um, Erin, I think, actually has some interesting ideas. Because she didn't grow up in the church like Laura and I did. I... I would love to hear what you have to say now. <laughs> so I was raised by atheists. And um, as my teenage rebellion, I joined a Baptist church. And um, and so, um, but it wasn't a church that did the whole, um, you know, true love waits kind of thing. I I didn't get a ring, and I'm okay with that, actually. And so uh, my mother uh, had a mother who told her nothing about sex. And so when it was time to talk about sex in our family, my mom was like, okay, you're getting a lot of facts. And so (laughs) we had a lot of we had a lot of books. Uh, I have had a copy of Our Bodies Ourselves from a very young age. Um, and and so that that was that was what I got. I got a lot of facts. I got a lot of um, it was just presented very neutrally, like this is your body, this is sex, this is how it goes, and 
yeah okay um i don't know about you guys but i didn't i never got a talk about the period about a period and so when it first happened to me i just thought it was gonna be like one time and then that was it <gasps> one and done just yep. one and done that would be convenient Same. and so like and so like i thought it was gonna be a long time though like a month and i was like oh that sucks <laughs> But then it's done. And then it went away in a week and I was like, sweet, I got lucky. And then the next month I was like, what? What is this? Un unacceptable. Um, on top of that, I didn't really know I had a vagina until, yeah. Yeah. Raise your hand if you're in that group. What did you think it was? <laughs> what? Yeah. So, yeah. Imagine, imagine that your body starts changing and you find out you had a whole other hole you didn't know about. Yeah. That's and then you thought your mom explains it sort of to you and then you're like oh I thought it, it's only gonna happen once nope that no. then that yeah no, uh -uh. so it's purity culture you didn't know it was there no that's terrifying right so, <laughs> FYI purity culture not yeah, purity culture okay okay, okay. Um, back back to the actual topic at hand um, but like obviously all these things are leading to like really problematic like mental like gymnastics right and 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 then a lot of sort of mental trauma for how we uh think about sex and relationships and both like our own selves and then also like how we understand the other right yes um and yeah and so we did some research uh linda k klein who wrote pure uh, was one of our main sources and she actually has like a lot of really interesting things to say about it she's kind of fantastic uh, yeah, so Klein notes in Pure, which you should read, um, that this kind of thinking presented as a part of purity culture um, can lead to a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder in that we went to war with ourselves, our own bodies, and that many women experience shame. And it's always helpful, I think, at this point to point out the difference between shame and guilt, right? Guilt is, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. Right. You are, you're very naughty. <laughs> That's, That's um, rude. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Klein also talks about this concept that women are dirty or, or bad because they're impure if they are sexual or, you know, not this sort of virginally pure uh, idea before marriage. And so some of the some of the terminology that they use is so, oh, it's so bad, like dirty tape that's been uh, unstuck because it's, it's stuck to too many things, right? If you've, if you've uh, had sexual experiences, you're just dirty and tainted. Um, or you're like an Oreo that's dropped on the ground and now the creamy part is, uh, has soaked up all the dirt. Or used cars, stained, rusty, and broken down. Um, you know, water that is tainted with food coloring. Just lovely imagery about women's bodies, y'all. Just fantastic. So that doesn't do any damage to anyone, does it? No, well, no. Um, if you do enough keggles, then your tape stays real sticky, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways. Sarah's leading a workshop right after this. <laughs> it's just like you have to concentrate on one thing and then not deviate. <laughs> anyways, um, psychiatrist Dr. Kurt Thompson the soul of shame retelling the stories we believe about ourselves that says uh, with repeated exposure to events in which we feel shame we pay attention and via our early neuroplastic flexibility more permanently encode these shame networks thus they become more easily able to fire later on even when activated by the most minor or even unrelated stimuli so basically 
you know, our our brains are being mapped from early ages, and the plasticity is sort of like being being elastic essentially flexible even from an early age and the more we hear a specific narrative the more that kind of imprints and so um if we're feeling these feelings of shame it's going to come up later like regardless it's just it becomes biological at that point right and it's happening at the time in your brain's development when it's cementing its adult form and making those really nice neural superhighways to shame (laughs) it's handy thank you thank you everyone all right thompson also notes when i perceive that i'm receiving the shame from a community of voices the pain can become unbearable when the collection of the voices of an entire community shames us it is more unwieldy due to our inability to locate it centrally in any one place and so when i feel shame in my family or my church addressing it feels quite overwhelming Indeed. Um, I feel like uh, community shaming is the mission statement of a lot of churches that I, I know of. <laughs> Their <laughs> underground mission <laughs> statement. Yeah, it's really, that's, what it, that's what it is. Um, and psych- healthy. Right. Super, super healthy. healthy. Uh, psychiatrist Dr. Shelley Urim uh, calls attention to the importance of recognizing small, quiet traumas, uh, which he has found often trigger the same brain survival reaction as larger traumas, such as a car crash. This is perhaps why people can panic whenever they go inside of a church. Um, if you've ever felt that yourself, or if you know somebody who has, uh, has kind of gone inside or gets near a church and they start to panic, there's a lot there that, you know, they have had these shaming responses that have been internalized and now it's kind of written into their brain's response. So to kind of like shift a little bit, um, it's not just like how this is affecting you and the mental health. There's also this very like public um, governmental kind of political element to it, too. Right. So according to the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the U.S. Psychus. Psychus? Psychus. Psychus. Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which. According to this, over $2 billion in federal funding has been allocated for abstinence-only programs in the U.S. since 1981. $2 billion. Much of this federal funding came through the Title V abstinence-only until marriage program, which is still in place today. This program requires states to match every four federal dollars they receive with three state-raised dollars presumably increasing the state-level contributions made towards abstinence-only programming in the process as well. The money is then redistributed to community and faith-based organizations, local and state health departments, and schools. Every state, except California, has at one time accepted Title V federal funding for abstinence-only until marriage programming. And Okay, so so we're talking about all this money has been pumped in so since 1981 can kind of see that that corresponded with Reagan coming in, right? Um, So we're sort of seeing the timeline of this. And at the same time this is happening on a federal level, we're also seeing um, things like symbols and commerce pop up from a capitalist perspective. So purity rings, like you were talking about, that you sported so lovingly throughout your teen years, right? So naively. Lovely. Did you actually wear it? Oh, 100%. Like every day? Like, uh, yeah, I think so. I think it was on this hand. Did oh, like a wedding ring finger? Is this is this a wedding yeah. ring finger? Yeah. Then, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I wore it. Um, so, yeah, so the purity rings that, like, what Sarah sported, um, this symbolizes this kind of who's in uh, and who's out, right? Uh, of of it, who's, who's pure and virginal in this sort of paradigm. 
And so teens are encouraged to buy swag that will identify them as, as being sort of in this club. So we've got rings, we've got shirts, we've got bracelets, we've got candy. <laughs> Again, like honestly though, but what kind of candy? You know, what? I feel like the candy should be maybe just, I don't know, like, uh, just Were like they ring pops? Uh, yeah. Cause that's ring, but weirdly it, but sexual, but also. Right, so it's like, yeah, just suck on this very slowly <laughs> in class. Very inappropriately. Mm, yeah, uncomfortable. And then that sounds right. I'm so holy. And then just as they're looking, yeah, it's, <laughs> I could totally see that you all like, I just because I feel like they're very naive. I feel like churches are also very naive. So, yeah. um, big pickles. Yes, also big pickles with just like pure purity on the side. Um, <laughs> yes, purity pickles. Make it trend, people. Purity pickles. Okay, if that shows up in a vendor cart next year at Wild Goose, you know where it came from. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, um, I think out of this, one of the grossest uh, products was the abstinence study Bible. Um, can you just imagine like teens sitting in their room just kind of crying and uh, instead of, you know, focusing on, uh, oh, we should be empowering, you know, the oppressed and like, you know, caring for um, all these different groups. It's really just about don't think sexual thoughts, don't think sexual thoughts, yeah. don't, you know, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. So it's just kind of awful to think about that. Um, and then the, all the curriculum and the events also that are brought up by these purity purveyors around the country. Yeah, so there are two big purity purveyors, which, like, it's just kind of a creepy phrase, purity purveyor. I don't want to be that. Anyways, the first is Silver Ring Thing, uh -huh. launched in 1993 and received $1.4 million in federal funding in 2005. 2005, I just want to, not that long ago, 2005, ACLU filed lawsuits a lawsuit contending that Silver Ring Thing was evangelizing at its government-funded events. A settlement was reached, and the government stopped funding the Silver Ring Thing in its current form, but they have hosted 1,300 events, reaching more than 684,000 people, a lot of which was fueled by government dollars. Before we carry on, can you say Silver Ring Thing one more time? Silver Ring Thing. Okay, okay. Yep. what does Silver Ring Thing sound like to you? Just... Oh, that's so, oh. that's so wholesome. It sounds that was dirtier. Very wholesome. That's so Doesn't so it sound wholesome. dirtier? Very it, it sounds kind of like a dildo or a cock ring or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I just, again, the naivety, the like naivety. silver ring yeah. thing. We're going to do this. Right. <laughs> what? <laughs> setting. All right. The other big purity purveyor was also founded in 1993 by the Southern Baptist Convention when they launched, say it with me now. True, True love. love. Wait. Wait. Oh. <laughs> That's nice. All right. <laughs> this program never received federal funding, but its relationship with the government was tight. They campaigned the government to allocate money towards abstinence-only programs and brought 20,000 teens to the National Mall, because, you know, you got nothing better else better to do in D.C., <laughs> and staked 211,000 purity pledges on the lawn. Very proud moment in our nation's history. <laughs> 150 purity activists had a special session with Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to let that one sit for a moment. Let you consider I, that. I want to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> yes. I really want to be a fly on the wall in that meeting. Can you imagine how awkward? 
like how many okay so we got 150 purity activists and bill bill clinton clinton yep all right okay. when did his scandal come out well which one he was uh, <laughs> not oh, not yet that would come that would come that. a few years later yeah. um <laughs> this, the whole cigar incident was a few years after that um but he was already you know balls deep as it were and mm. <laughs> <laughs> yep i did it uh in in scandal up at that point so yeah. it's just very funny to think about yeah so uh yeah these 150 purity activists met with bill clinton and two years later congress allocated 50 million dollars a year for abstinence only educational programming honestly you guys um what the fuck happened in 1993 that two separate purity institutions, capitalistic institutions, happened? Like, how did that even go down? Because does, what was going on in 1992 is my question. Sure. So, but not 1992, right? More like 1982. You think? I mean, you gotta <laughs> to build to build that kind of power. You gotta start. You gotta start with the plan way back. It's. I, I kind of think it had a lot to do with Reagan and the merging of the religious right. Um, mm -hmm. After so after Jimmy Carter lost the presidency, then you know Ronald Reagan comes into power. There's this marriage to the religious right and the Falwells. And um, in fact, if you want to try this, um, if you go into the bathroom late at night, you turn <laughs> off all the lights, this is and true. you say "silver ring" thing three times. Yeah. Jer Jerry Falwell will appear. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You'll never pee again, but. <laughs> <laughs> you will shit your pants. That's true. You will. That cute. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, one purity curriculum that came out of this that Linda K. Klein was studying, she, it found, she found that it boasted that it had reached 4 million students in 47 states, which is a whopping 10 percent of 10 to 19 year olds in the United States today and federal funding increased so it just kept increasing as the years went on from 50 million in the 1990s to 90 million dollars for abstinence only sex education in 2016 despite congressional research stating that students who experienced abstinence-only education in public schools were no more likely than the control group of youth to have abstained from sex. And among those who reported having had sex, they had similar numbers of partners and had initiated sex at the same mean age. So basically, it's doing no good to delay sex. Um, it's just instilling shame into all these people. And so you have it's it's spirit. It's you know, we've got mental health issues. We have got issues about consent and rape that aren't being addressed because we are not talking about sex ed at all. Um, so it's just really harming our nation's kids and then ultimately the adults later on that haven't dealt with their shit. Well, and I mean, like, I'm going to go on a tangent here. Do but, um, you know, we talk a lot, I think, about the women's experience with these situations because the onus is so on the woman and, like, on her body. But it's really, like, super harmful for everyone. Um, I was just talking to a friend of mine um, who was telling me he – we were talking specifically about this topic in the podcast, and um, – he actually had waited until his early 20s to get married, and he married a woman in the same situation, right? So it was very, like, purity ring culture, that whole deal. 
and so there there is that like a there's that element of guilt and shame um but there's also like a significant lack of communication and so he was telling me they're divorced now and he was telling me these stories about how it took them like a full month to even have actual penetrative sex and how it was really problematic and it's really honestly it sounded like a metal condition it sounded like vaginismus and but it wasn't like they ever went to the doctor or talked about it they just kind of like tried to work through it and I think like that's a significant element to the problem is that a there's no ability to have that conversation because there's so much like uh, mental resistance to it and then I think that there's so much shame on both parts because for the men it's supposed to be this kind of like rite of passage and for the women there's so much like identity wrapped up in your virginity going into it and then how do you not have like a crisis of self-identity once you've gotten married and I Right. If, right. If you think that your body is bad or, you know, bad and dirty and anything sexual is wrong. And then the second you're married, it's supposed to be, well, I'm supposed to be, um, you know, in a heterosexual relationship, at least, you know, I'm supposed to be uh, yeah. ready to have sex at any given point. But yeah. like what you said, you know, kind of we talked about the neuroplasticity in the brain and how you've internalized the shame response. You know, the body the, you know, as kind of Vessel van der Kolk says, the body keeps the score, right? You hold that trauma in your body. And so that kind of the conditions like you're talking about, vaginismus, um, where, you know, the, the muscles are clenched and there's, you know, like vaginal or pelvic pain that, you know, if you're, if you're told that your body is bad, why are you going to be relaxed or have any sense of, oh, this is a good thing. You can't just flip that overnight. So... It's not only, you know, we've, so we've talked about the mental health component, we've talked about, um, you know, consent, we've talked about all these kinds of things, but it's also setting people up for really terrible relationships when they actually get together because they can't talk openly about sex. They, there's, no, there's no real, um, you know, pl- uh, blueprint for them to do that. Yeah. And so they just think that they're, they're fucked up and, they're, and they can't talk about it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and so obviously this has done a significant amount of amount of damage. Right. And and we can see that statistically, according to the National Longitudinal Study of Ad- Adolescent Health, which I swear is an actual study, um, evangelical adolescents are least likely to expect sex to be pe- pleasurable and among the most likely to expect that having sex will make them feel guilty. Yet one's level of religiosity and one's gender have even a greater impact on one's likelihood to experience sexual shame um, than one's denominational affiliation. Girls were found to be 92% more likely to experience sexual guilt than boys. It occurs to me just now that's also really unhelpful because marriage is presented as an end game. Like everything's leading up to marriage and you get there and then I don't know there's a sense that it's magic and you've got it figured out and you know what you're doing and you realize you know nothing because you haven't spent any time talking about it or exploring who you are. So how, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. popped in okay all right i like it thank you all right um so uh, linda k klein who we've been mentioning has uh, one quote from her book that kind of sums up just how confusing this ideology in practice can be she says my friends and i were told in one breath that we were loved unconditionally accepted just as we were and headed for heaven and in the next we were warned of the evils of feminists 
homosexuals, women who had sex outside of marriage, and other hell-bound individuals. Choo-choo, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on that train. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's you. Yeah, all right, cool. I'm just going to blow in here. Um, so, uh, like, another another thought about this, because it's, I mean, it's ridiculous, right, that you're you're either all good or all bad. Um, but also the sense that if you're if you're having problems and you can't you can't talk about it. Um, another thing that has been happening is that counseling, social work, all those kinds of things have been sort of strategically removed from divinity schools, more conservative divinity schools and replaced with things like biblical counseling, um, which is not a thing. It's just not a thing. It's not actual. <laughs> it's not a thing. Um, you, you can't just be like, eh, oh, you have this very complex thing that's going on, um, you know, in the 21st century. Let's let's turn to Leviticus. And that's somehow going to inform um, what's going on right now. That's it's ridiculous. And so uh, so this all out rejection of science is a c- leading to a complete disconnect of one's bodies. And this kind of relates to the next point um, that Klein found um, in the process of recovery and rebuilding among abused women in the conservative evangelical subculture. Um, That is a a source that reported um, some studies about um, recovery amongst women who had survived uh, abuse. And they found that that one big problem was the church's emphasis on traditional gender roles, sometimes called complementarianism in the conservative church. Like, oh, it's good. The women are the weak and men are strong and it's great and it's not great. Um, because this w- this found to be a huge like sort of fueling factor in intimate partner violence. Um, according to the study, um, the win- women experienced isolation and alienation as the church denied or minimized the severity of the family violence problem. So when counseling was provided, aka biblical counseling, um, the church often suggested the problem would be alleviated if the abused woman followed what the church believed was the divine pattern of loving, obedient submission to her husband. And one woman said her pastor told her to pray more and submit more, like this is going to somehow make it better. It doesn't. Um, it, it actually just keeps fueling the problem because you're staying in this cycle of abuse. Um, so fuck that pastor. Uh, like that's just, you're, you're telling people to stay in, a, in an abusive situation where the ultimate outcome is, is more danger and more, more violence that gets handed down to the next generation. I feel like pray more, submit more is just code for quit being such a frigid bitch. And I want to punch that guy in the face. So um, another source, uh, Clapp, Helbert, and Zizek found in Faith Matters, Teenagers, Religion, and Sexuality, they found that 90% of female teens who are active in faith communities say they would like programs to help them avoid rape, harassment, and abuse. But many of their uh, many of their churches will never directly discuss the issues. It's like these teens are just screaming into a void. And... I know we all know the thing, but it, when when will this narrative of like women need to avoid rape and men need to just like they don't have they're just like well, who who cares what men are doing? It's about women needing to avoid it, right? I'm I'm so over that narrative. Men just uh, not you guys. You got you all seem great, but uh, general. just in general, just general, okay. just don't just don't do don't it. Don't rape. It's really that simple. Right. Right. Horrifying that the focus that these girls have is how do I avoid this thing happening to me? Right. Right. And it should be like, how do I become a full person 
and whoever I am, but they can't do that because there's an immediate threat to their safety in their lives. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anybody feeling angry about this? Yeah? Okay, good. Good. We can do something about it. Um, We can, yeah. So uh, if you're in a church, uh, you can advocate for comprehensive sex education. Uh, One of the best curriculums out there, if you're not familiar with it, is OWL. Our whole lives. (laughs) They don't actually do the who, but you can. I kind of wish they did. Um, (laughs) It was created and developed by the Unitarian Universalists. It's a comprehensive lifespan sexuality education curriculum for use in both secular settings and faith communities. Uh, It teaches that bodies are sacred while also giving scientific, non-shaming information. How revolutionary. (laughs) (laughs) Just good sense. Yeah. Um, And whether you belong to a church or not, you can also advocate for comprehensive sex education in schools. And Planned Parenthood has a lot of good resources for how to start uh, doing this, Um, even if you have nowhere to, you know, no idea on where to start. um, You can go to PlannedParenthoodAction.org to find out how to act, whether or not that's programs in your church, programs in your community, programs in your schools, um, or uh, how to contact your, you know, Congress people and try to get them to be held accountable in some form or fashion. So fuel that rage, fuel that rage into action, y'all. It's really the only way we can change anything. Yeah, and um, we've left a lot of time for <laughs> Q&A, um, and it's really, like, a big part of that is because we want to know, like, what's going on. I mean, I personally, like, I live in a very specific kind of, like, liberal bubble and I would love to know like what y'all stories are about like what is going on in your churches um, as far as sex education and if it's being addressed how it's being addressed um, what that even looks like yeah I was just gonna maybe narrow it down to, to one just, no, <laughs> just I want all the okay. questions to be answered. Um, uh, is there uh, is there um, a time when you have encountered purity culture negatively and if you, <laughs> I see some faces like, <laughs> like, like, everyone like has. fuck yeah. yes, come on, <laughs> that's why I'm here. Has. Everyone has. Um, but how would you, thinking back to when you did, how would you advocate to change that as an adult now? Is there, is there um, some things that you have been involved in or, um, or, or have ideas about and for the particular context with which you were in? All right, tell, say, uh, can you say your name and then tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, yeah, this is a really awkward placement. I just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> name that um, for everybody. What's your uh, greatest weakness? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. If this has turned into <laughs> an interview now, I like it. I <laughs> care too much. Yes. <laughs> um, but no, so my name is uh, Ben Tapper. Uh, I grew up in an evangelical Pentecostal church, and mm-hmm. so I'm very, very familiar with purity culture. Um, it definitely shaped the way that I experienced my own sexuality growing up, mm-hmm. as did the trauma that I experienced as a young child. Um, and I think it got in the way of me unpacking that trauma and thus connecting with my body, which was hugely problematic. Um, And so if I could go back in time and advocate for a change or transformation, I would actually start at the scriptural level, Um, Mm. not because I think it's the most important personally, but because I think uh, it's what the people in leadership in my church would be most receptive to. Mm. Um, And so I would uh, walk through a scriptural interpretation and a hermeneutic that would break down what it means for our bodies to actually be a temple and what it means to respect them as holy and divine and and what that obligation then requires in terms of education, interpretation, um, and responsibility for mutual respect. Like what... Like what Bible verses? Like what parts of the Bible? So I say as the always asking the, the ear 
irritating questions like right. Gnostic. <laughs> so um, I would actually start uh, with the creation narrative in Genesis, right? That would be the, the perfect place to start. Um, not necessarily the one where Eve is taken from Adam's rib. I th- that's just that's annoying. Mm. Uh, I would Agreed. start <laughs> uh, with, with the first one where humanity is just created. Men and women are created in the image of the of, of mm-hmm. God and God is described as plural, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're creating the image of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, that breaks down the hierarchy that is inherent in biblical interpretation already, right? So then yeah. just humanity, whatever gender you are representative is created in the divine image already innately, right? And so yeah. then that is a, a, a neutral starting place that then we can then talk about how to build up families. Um, and then I would really highlight um, the women leaders in the Bible, right? I hi- mm-hmm. highlight the leaders like Deborah. I'd highlight um, the pe- the women that supported the ministry of Jesus in scripture that often go nameless. I would highlight uh, Mary, who was the first to see Jesus after he was resurrected, supposedly, right? Yeah. So I would highlight those stories um, to really bring women into the center and, again, deconstruct this patriarchal marginalization uh, of the feminine, because I think that also contributes to the marginalization of feminine bodies as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, done. well said. Um, well said, Ben. Love it. Um, I want to ask a f- like a follow-up question of not necessarily of you, but just um, to the audience. Um, how many uh, sort of in the settings that you grew up in, would you say that your church focused even a little bit on the Song of Solomon? Four. Okay. And I like that ha- half of the respondents, just for those of you listening to this in the future, um, uh, are Jewish, right? That go to um, wh- what's your what's your temple? Conservative, yeah, conservative temple in Greensboro. Um, And so for, I think, for a Christian context, it's probably a lot more rare. And I wonder for the Christians in the audience, would you say that it, when you heard about Song of Solomon, Song of Songs growing up, that it was a lot more like, this is a model for Jesus and the church, and it has nothing to do with sex? No, okay, so there, yes, please, (laughs) come back, Ben. (laughs) Tell us more. I'm back. Um, so no, uh, it, they talked about it being a model for Jesus in the church, but they also talked about it being a the only place where sexuality is actually overtly expressed in the Bible, Ooh. which was really fascinating. And so they sometimes they would even jokingly tell parents, "Hey, you know, we're going to preach about this, but maybe don't bring your kids in here, right? Because th- we're talking about sex." Um, but if I could pitch a session, I actually. Uh, was yes. in Wild Goose. There was a session, uh, there was a table reading on the Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it blew my mind. I don't know if any of y'all were in that uh, yesterday or today. Yes. Yeah. Hey, it was wonderful because she, she broke down an interpretation of Song of Solomon in a way I had never heard it. And rather than it being this wonderful love story that was filled with really wild imagery, like comparing a woman's teeth to ewes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> She talked about it as being um, an act of poetic resistance, right? It was, it was a poem written by a marginalized group of people within the kingdom of Israel um, in which King Solomon was supposedly uh, kidnapping young women to be part of his royal court. Mm-hmm. And so they wrote this as, as a, a play of resistance to remind their fellow people of what they could do, how they could stand against this tyranny, right, and, and what the end result of that would be. Um, and so that lens is one I never heard and I thought was really empowering. Thank mm. you. Yeah, thank you. Um, can I also just uh, just to pick on? Okay, so um, you're from a Jew and a Gentile walk into a bar mitzvah podcast, right? Yes. Um, and can can I can I ask you a question? Can you come to the mic? Um, sure. Okay. How did you experience growing up as? Uh, did you grow up as a conservative Jew as well? Yes, I did. Can you talk a little bit about how you encountered Song of Songs and uh, the difference? So th- a little bit of the dichotomy between Great. Christian and Jew. Yeah. So. 
as a teen growing mm -hmm. up, it, it is presented that, yes, this is a sexual, it's the world's greatest erotic poem, mm -hmm. and there's a reason the rabbis put it in the Bible. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And yes, it can be seen as also metaphorical, mm -hmm. but it is about the inherent beauty and power of sexuality, especially in um, a, a relationship as binding it together. And then I, uh, as, as a teacher teaching Bible as literature, then reading Augustine saying that Song of Songs is proof of Judaism's depravity. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, uh, because we're just carnal creatures and we were depraved when we decided it should be in the Bible. Yeah. But growing up, it's like, yes, you know, sex is a good thing. Um, if you go to our, if you don't mind, if you, if you go to our blog and podcast, I have yeah. a blog post called, And God Said Let There Be Sex and It Was Good. <laughs> yes. Um, exploring uh, Song of Songs as an erotic poem. So, at, and in Judaism, I don't, you know, premarital sex is good because rabbis believed that sex is vital in a marriage mm -hmm. and as soon as people have committed that they're going to be in a relationship they should start having sex mm -hmm. so that they can explore and figure each other out mm -hmm. uh the, the ketubah the wedding contract marriages in judaism are uh, legal uh contractual obligations mm -hmm. uh and in many many jewish families including my own our ketubah is in our bedroom and the reason it is is that the ketubah lays out all of the husband's obligations to the woman. Mm. Wow. She has none. She's not obligated. And one of the obligations that I have as a husband is to keep my wife sexually satisfied. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, of course, my wife took it and mounted it over our bed. <laughs> That was awesome. Uh, and yeah, and it's a, it and it's a mitzvah. It's a commandment, and it's a double mitzvah on Shabbos. Nice. So having having marital sex yeah. on Shabbat is twice as pleasing to God, and to my wife as well. Get it. <laughs> so in conclusion, we're all gonna uh, now convert to Judaism. <laughs> are we good on time or? Okay. Yeah, we've, we've um, got time. We've got like 20 minutes. Okay, cool. Are, are there are there any more questions um, or thoughts about the context of growing up in purity culture and how you would sort of what you would do to that context? You know, now knowing a little bit more as an adult. Or, or, or do you want to just like tell us about your experience growing yeah. up in that kind of culture? That too. Yeah, come on up. Yeah. I didn't date uh, until I met my wife, and I think that affected me. Yeah. Ooh. But like, do you want to talk more about that or no? <laughs> He's like, you're like, no, I don't. No, no, yeah, it's like, okay. okay. I thought I was gonna frame you up, and then I. <laughs> okay. Um, now we're just gonna speculate wildly on that, and it's gonna be very fun. <laughs> It's okay. Well, well, that's that's basically it. It's um, it's been socializing. Socializing after divorcing has been an effort, mm -hmm. and I wonder if I'm going through a greater effort than the norm, since I didn't date at all, mm -hmm. and now I had to confront that problem. Well, I saw it as a problem since it was so late, and I was now after marriage, so mm. it's a dilemma. 
yeah yeah i think that's i think that's really interesting and i don't think that that's like i think that that's very common um i mean uh, I, and for a few different reasons, like one, you just sort of lose your own like personal identity when you when you like couple with somebody else. Um, I say as somebody whose longest relationship was two years, so I don't get to actually like speak on that. Um, but you but you do right and then like when you get out of that just the process itself is traumatizing the process itself is just like is the is like ripping away a piece of yourself. And so, like, it's already a baseline of, like, pain. And then when you add on to that a secondary, a secondary layer of, like, well, I don't even, I have no basis for how to proceed forward. Like, my whole context was doing this one thing, and now I've done it, and what do I do with my life now that that is done? Does, is that? Yeah. Um, I have a thought about that. Um, so uh, an, an issue that um, one of my friends, Aaron Phelps, was talking about was that uh, two people uh, come together to make a whole, two halves to make a whole is really intensely fucked up, right? Because we're all, if we're all made in God's image, um, then why are we not complete? And then coming together um, into a relationship is just two sort of independent, authentic people coming together to create community. And it also presupposes that two people are coming together um, and that they only need each other to, um, to survive, which is also fucked up, right? Because you need the community to bless you and sort of it, it, like if, if you do get married, there's like a community blessing, but what's that even for if two halves are making a whole? Like the whole thing is just totally fucked. So why don't we have a, a better narrative even around relationships and that it's two individuals coming together to empower one another and each other's mission and support one another um, and their own authenticity and that we aren't gonna just get everything from our spouse, right? They're not there to just meet 100% of our needs that we're gonna have healthy friendships and acquaintances and there's a whole community that, you know, our, our role is to support one another. So that's just a random thought that I had. Is yeah, yeah. Are, there is it, are there any other questions before we? Yes, 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 come on up. So I grew up in an evangelical community, and thankfully I was just a few years too old to catch the full brunt of the purity culture. But when you talked about your dad giving you the purity ring and the father-daughter balls and all that, the first thing that came up, and I didn't even know this existed in my subconscious, was her dad must have loved her very much. And it gets to the core of that reframing that unfortunately, Evangel evangelicalism is very good at, which is they feed you poison Kool-Aid and then tell you how much you should appreciate it and be grateful for it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I think I think that's super true. I mean, the idea that like, you know, the dad is supposed to be the ideal husband. It just seems like a little incestuous to me. It just seems gross. I don't like it. But that's no. You're no, like no, hard pass. No. <laughs> okay, so I have, I have a question related here because I having not grown up in an evangelical environment, like who who is this benefiting? Like why is it worth maintaining? Punishment for the fall. <laughs> Punishment oh, for the fall. Bolt. Okay. 
Um, so uh, I think that's a really good question. Who does this benefit, right? Um, so my day job, I'm a therapist. Um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And so I have a lot of thoughts about this from a clinical perspective. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with power, right? I think a lot of it has to do with power and maintaining structures. Structures love to be maintained. It's kind of the concept of homeostasis, right? We just love to keep maintaining shit, even if it's so unhealthy. And so it's, it's hurting everyone in the system. Like, it's hurting men, it's hurting women, it's, it's, it's hurting kids. Um, it's hurting everyone, but to admit it would mean that the whole system has to be revamped. And so if you are, um, I'm projecting right now, but if you are in the Southern Baptist Convention and you are in a position of power, then admitting that means I lose my status. Like let's say, let's, let's say that you are a male pastor uh, that's in a position of power that makes 150K in a big church, okay? If you uh, are starting to realize, um, I, f I feel sick about this. My wife, uh, you know, because inevitably it's Southern Baptist Convention, it's going to be, you know, heterosexual monogamy, right? Uh, uh, at least they'll pr they're pretending they are. Um, so, you know, the, the man is trying to fit into this sort of like rigid, like I'm the head of the household. Um, probably there's some issues with that, right? Stress, um, tendency to die earlier, heart attack. Um, the woman um, might be seen as frigid because of some of the stuff that she has gone through because she has to make that switch overnight. So there's a whole lot of, of issues. And if they as a family realize that they didn't want to do it that way, then he loses his status. Um, he has, you know, loses position. He loses his job. Maybe the whole family loses their livelihood. They have to figure out a whole new thing. So if you're, you know, I'm thinking like just coming into it like Brian McLaren's story, right? He kind of had to sort of re-envision a whole new way of being um, coming from that background. So I think a lot of it is about the system wanting to maintain itself and maintain who's who's in power. Does it, do you all think that's? Yes. yes. Yeah? Yes. Fairly accurate? Okay. I like to always bring it back to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> um, does anybody else? Have any any comments? Yeah. All right. So one thought I had too is I when when you have a salvation story, like you need an enemy, right? And so if you look at any kind of ideological system, like we we did drugs, right, around the '80s, and oh, yeah. and so like if you're presenting a story that we're bringing salvation to the country and that doesn't work. You have to continue to invent a new evil that is the reason why we haven't attained the salvation that our ideology is presenting, right? Or our way of life's presenting. And so sex just was one of those. I was fully in um, purity culture as a, as a male. I was in Bible college doing youth ministry and we handed out the, um, uh, blank, the, uh, the pamphlet? No, the book. The Josh Harris, Josh Harris yes. Uh, I kissed dating goodbye, yes. Well, and uh, like, um, was fully inundated. I knew masturbation was bad for about six years before I knew what masturbation was. <laughs> if that tells you about the gap of Baptist education. Like, and so that, that was part of my experience. Um, what I would say just from a male perspective, for those that grew up in it, it, we didn't, at least the group that I was a part of, weren't getting the like, yeah, go and conquer. It was like, so much shame and so like we had accountability partners which were really like who masturbated over the last week partners 
And and so like so much of the pressure was to come back and check in and go, okay, who did you get aroused by and how did you handle that? And that was almost like a weekly habit for most of my youth group. Yeah, anybody relate? Okay. Um, anecdotally, uh, I went to a Southern Baptist high school and so we had a chapel once a week and you couldn't like, they wouldn't end chapel until they're, until people like sort of like went to the front and rededicate themselves to, life, to, to Jesus, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and one time, <laughs> what? Oh, and one time, like the only real chapel that I remember was one guy who went up to the front and confessed that he'd been masturbating. And everybody was like, what <laughs> did you just do? It was so awkward. Right, right. like I feel like it would have been better if he's like, I murdered somebody over the weekend. Yeah, okay, we can forgive that. But masturbation, nope, straight to hell. <laughs> did you have a question? I do. Yes. It, it, I, it, all these uh, explanations that say that you need it, in, I, th with all due respect, to people who've already proposed stuff. But do you need an enemy or it's something in the scripture that says, you know, with the fall or something like that, women are being paid back for eating the apple and seducing Adam. I, I never am happy with those because usually somebody is benefiting, literally benefiting from these horrible things being done to people. Uh, and, I, and it usually means money. At least it means actual social power. And, you know, patriarchy is a real thing the people who benefit from it are actually benefiting it's not just you know meanness or something they're actually getting something from it and that's I think that's why we have to really we have to keep looking deeper and deeper and change some of the things well this has to be our big agenda as people of faith is to change or at least influence positively how these things affect the general culture because this is the result of that kind of stuff. It's very hard to undo, but that's sort of our job. Yeah. yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Um, if I might uh, close this out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I want to say uh, in response to that, that um, absolutely, and a couple of the things that we had just to review, um, if you're if you're angry and you're thinking, how, how the fuck do I change how terrible things are, um, try to advocate for ministers in your church getting trained in our whole lives. Um, the Unitarian Universalist Comprehensive Lifespan Sexuality Education Curriculum um, because you want the youth in your church uh, to be healthy and know what consent is and, and be safe and happy and know that their bodies are beautiful and they're happy just, you know, they can be happy just the way they are. Um, also, um, get involved with Planned Parenthood. Um, that you advocate for, um, they can help you advocate for comprehensive sex education in schools uh, and in your communities. Um, go to PlannedParenthoodAction.org uh, to find out how to act today. Um, well, or whenever you get internet access outside of Hot Springs. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming today. Um, you can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Um, you can find out more about us on Patreon uh, and support us, patreon.com uh, slash BibleBitchesPodcast. Um, and get access to special content and more swag as well. We love swag. We love swag, beer, and friends. That's what, that's, that's what we do. And we also want to, in general, give a shout out to the Wild Goose Festival for being amazing hosts to us and our special guest, Aaron Goddard. 
Um, so thank you all for coming and stick around and just say hello after. Thanks. Woo!